Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. So, it's been a little while since I preached, um, and I think, if I remember right, the last time, actually, I stood up here at the beginning and I, and I kind of complained, if you remember, about how Jared always leaves me with some of these passages he doesn't want to deal with. And I kind of whined a little bit um, about having to deal with, you know, the passage from Acts on Simon the Sorcerer and the passage from 1 Corinthians on, on sexual sin, things that I just thought Jared didn't want to deal with and he was always making me preach once in a while and handle. And I just want to let you know that I have lost all of my leverage uh, to complain about that anymore for a couple of reasons. First of all, when Stephanie and I were gone uh, a few weeks ago for the, the retreat we went on, I, uh, I had my friend Paul fill in for me downstairs in uh, the youth Sunday school class, and we've been going through the book of Judges. We're done with Judges now. But at that time, we were getting towards the end of Judges, and uh, just the way it fell, Paul ended up with Judges chapter 19. And if you're not familiar with Judges chapter 19, a man has a concubine who's cheating on him, and then she's raped and killed, and then he cuts her into 12 pieces and mails her to the 12 tribes of Israel. So while I was gone, Paul had to deal with that passage in youth class. Um, so I felt really bad about making fun of Jared for leaving me with difficult passages to preach on. The other reason why I have no leverage left is because earlier in the week, Jared and I talked about where he left off in the Gospel of Mark as we're going through Mark and where I should pick up and what I should be looking at. He gave me some options, um, but I kind of put that on the shelf and worked on my lesson for Wednesday night for youth group first, which we were in John chapter 6, and I'll come back to that a little bit, for youth group. And so when I got around to starting on my preparation for the sermon, which was Thursday, I had been in John chapter 6 for youth group, and Jared was in Mark, and I put the two together, and I started studying Mark chapter 6. And Jared had told me to pick up in Mark chapter 4. And so I basically jumped ahead a couple chapters and didn't realize it until last night when I was almost done with the sermon and called Jared and said, you told me to start two chapters before this. And he said, don't worry about it. Preach what you, what you have. So anyway, I have lost all leverage for complaining about what I have to deal with preaching. We're in Mark chapter six today, even though we're supposed to be in Mark chapter four. So we're going to jump ahead a couple chapters. Maybe we'll get a chance to come back to some of the stories in, uh, in 4 and 5, uh, we'll see how that unfolds. But before we get started in Mark 6, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, that uh, even when we uh, get lost, confused, um, we're not even sure sometimes what we're doing and where we're supposed to be. Uh, you can still speak to us. Uh, you reach into our lives. You, uh, you speak to us in, in a still small voice at times. Um, but you find a way to speak to us through your creation, through other people, uh, through your spirit. And we thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that this morning uh, you would speak to us through your word, uh, that we would hear what you have to say, uh, that we would listen, and that we'd be, we would be changed to become like Christ. Uh, Lord, we pray that everything we talk about and say and do this morning brings glory and honor to the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So... We're in Mark chapter 6 today, and you know that uh, Jared's been uh, kind of working through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, here for a few weeks. And 
not necessarily verse by verse, but looking at stories of Jesus, uh, just stories of Jesus from the book of Mark. And, and, you know, he's mentioned how each of the four Gospels are uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, they're written from four different perspectives by four different men, four different guys who wrote those books with different purposes uh, and to reach different audiences. And, and even though we're not doing a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Mark, we're still able to see some of the style that, that he uses, some of the perspective that, that Mark, the author, brings to these stories of the life of Christ. And, and Mark wrote uh, his gospel, as Jared's mentioned, he wrote this gospel in a very direct way. Um, it's not nearly as long as the book of Matthew, but, but at the same time, even though it's direct, he includes a lot of descriptive words and phrases. He, he used some colorful, la- not, not colorful language like when you smash your thumb with a hammer, he used some colorful language like um, descriptive words to get the point across. And, and we've also seen how Mark finds a way to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. We have we have seen him talk about the emotions of Jesus. If you remember some of the things we've looked at, we've seen Jesus grow angry. We've seen Jesus deeply distressed. We have seen him hungry. And as we look at Mark chapter 6 today, we're going to see a little bit more of the human side of Jesus. Now, there's a lot going on in this chapter, if you're not familiar with Mark chapter 6. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty heavy chapter, really. Um, we're going to eventually get to the point later on in the chapter, the story that we're dealing with today. But first, I, I kind of want to set the table for what we're doing by looking back at the first part of chapter 6. Now, if you were to look there in verse 1, first few verses, it tells us that Jesus went to his hometown. And there in his hometown, he was unable to do many miracles because the people there knew him and they knew his family. And they didn't uh, have faith in who Jesus really was. If you look at verse 4, it says, Jesus said only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor he cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed at their lack of faith so the chapter starts with jesus being rejected in his hometown in his own area by the people who should have known him best in the very next verse the next section in this passage tells us that Jesus sends out his 12 disciples and he gives them the authority to heal, to teach, and to cast out demons uh, among the people, to drive out evil spirits. In verse 12 it says, and they went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So Jesus responded to this rejection in his hometown by sending out his disciples with the authority, his authority, to teach, to preach, and to heal those who were hurting. But then the chapter kind of transitions, and and it takes a a pretty dark twist as we see the story of how King Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. Herod had taken his brother's wife, her name was Herodias, he had taken his brother's wife as his own, and John had preached against it and told him that it was wrong. And so Herod had John put in prison. Now, he didn't want... To kill John, it tells us, but he did have him thrown in prison. And as the story goes, at Herod's birthday party, his woman, Herodias, had her daughter dance for King Herod. And he liked it so much that he promised this daughter that he would give her anything up to half of his kingdom. So she went and talked to her mother, and her mother convinced her to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod not wanting to do it, but also not wanting to break his promise. He fulfilled it, and he brought John, he had John beheaded and brought the head in 
on a platter. Now remember that John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus and close friend of Jesus. And remember that John had baptized as we looked back in Mark chapter 1. We saw that John had baptized Jesus not long before. It doesn't actually tell us in the book of Mark Jesus' response to this event, to John's death. But in Matthew it tells us that when Jesus heard about John's death, he withdrew to a solitary place. And so we come to our passage for today with with a lot of heaviness on the plate. Remember, Jesus is, is at a point here where he had been rejected by his own people in his hometown. He was a prophet without honor. He had then sent his disciples out, dispersed them out among the area to teach and to preach and to heal on their own. So he had been alone, not with his closest friends. And then he also, at some point in here, had received the news of the violent death of his cousin and friend, John. Jesus was probably ready just to welcome his disciples back and to hear about their journey, to hear the things they had seen and witnessed and done. He was ready to spend some time alone with his friends. He was ready to mourn, to recover, to rest. And his disciples were probably ready for some downtime as well. Jesus had sent them out on their own to preach and to teach and to care for hurting people. And they had, they had traveled, they had worked, they had gone without sleep, they had probably gone with little food for quite some time. As they wandered around the area, they were also ready to rest. And here we pick up the story for today after this time of, of deep grief and mourning and being tired and being rushed and being lonely. We see the passage we're dealing with today. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Now I'm going to read the whole passage through and then we'll come back and talk about a few things. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus said, go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, this is how my mind got twisted up a little bit. On Wednesday nights, we started a series that we're doing here to finish out the school year on the I Am statements that are found in the book of John and uh, in the Gospel of John. And this past Wednesday night, we actually dealt with this story the feeding of the 5,000 from John's perspective as we were talking about Jesus saying that he said, I am the bread of life. 
One of the things you might find interesting, you've probably, most of you have heard this story before, one of the things you might find interesting is that there are only two, <laughs> two miracles um, that are recorded in all four Gospels that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write about. There's only two that are recorded in all four. There's overlap in several other things and in the teaching, but there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four. One of those is the resurrection of Jesus. It's pretty important that that's included in all four. Uh, the other is this story here, the feeding of the 5,000. There are only two miracles recorded, and the feeding of the 5,000 um, is one of those. Now, most of you have heard this story before, the five loaves, the two fish, and the 5,000 people, and the 12 basketfuls left over. But what I hope to do today is to point out a few things about the importance of this story that maybe you haven't heard before, maybe some things that you're unfamiliar with. Uh, let's look again at how it starts. First of all, Jesus welcomed his disciples back from their travels, from being gone, from being out, uh, wandering around, not eating, not sleeping very well. He wanted a chance to hear what they had done, what they had experienced, who they had helped, who they had cared for. But the text says that there were so many people coming and going when they got together that they didn't even have time to sit down and eat together. And so Jesus told the twelve, it says in the text, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You see, Jesus knew at that point what they needed it had been a heavy time. It had been a busy time. He and his disciples had been rejected. They had been working. John had been killed. The disciples had been traveling. He knew they had been serving and dealing with people. He knew they were exhausted. They'd been surrounded by people as they were carrying out his commission. And he knew that they were stressed out and tapped out. He understood the need they had to rest. He knew the physical value and the spiritual value of rest. God ordained rest when he established a Sabbath day for his people. But notice that, what I want you to notice is that Jesus didn't just tell them, go away alone and rest. Go to a quiet place by yourself. He said to them, come with me. Let's get away and rest. You see, there's a difference for us. We need to understand there's a difference for us between hiding away by ourselves, running away and hiding, and finding rest and peace with Jesus. There's a distinction. You know, it's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a difference between hiding from people, hiding from responsibilities, and resting with Jesus. Hiding from a situation or from people doesn't eliminate stress that we face. It doesn't eliminate busyness and bring peace, but finding peace and rest in Christ does. You know, it's unfortunate in our culture, we have a lot of different ways for us to rest. Some of us get home for the night, we lock the door, we sit on the couch, and we watch TV to see someone else's version of reality. Some of us come home, plop down, pop open Facebook on our phones, and create our own version of reality. Some of us come home, crack open a 12-pack, and forget about reality. We try whatever we can to hide from the difficulties, the heaviness, the stress, the people of life. But then there are some of us who do also whatever we can to avoid rest. We schedule as many activities as we can. We commit to as many groups as we can. We find a way to be involved in more things than we have time to. Because as long as I am busy and I'm working, and I'm running, and I'm accomplish, accomplishing something, then I don't have to deal with 
my reality. I don't have to deal with my marriage and the difficulties there if I'm too busy to sit down and talk about it. I don't have to deal with my kids if they're always involved in something. I don't have to deal with my own spiritual condition, my sin, if I don't have time to stop and think about it. And so we run from one thing to the next. And we say that when I get time, I will catch up with Jesus. He'll still be there for me when I have a minute. And we run from one thing to the next because as long as we are running, we don't have to come face to face with our condition. And if we could just slow down for a minute, we could hear that still small voice that is calling to us, as Jesus said, to come away with me and rest. Now, you know that's part of why we're here today. I mean, that's why we, we get together every week in part, so that we can step away from the chaos that has become our lives, and together we can listen to the voice that is calling us to perfect rest and peace. We meet here so that we can encourage each other, and we can be refreshed and rested to carry out His commission when we leave this place. We come here so, so that we can turn to the only one who does something about our spiritual condition, the only one who can do something with our sin. But that's also why we encourage you, each one of you, to spend that time with Jesus every day on your own. Read the Bible, spend time praying, repent, be refreshed with Christ. You'll find rest if you look for it in the right place. He will give you rest. And if you don't know how to start that, if you don't know how to start reading the Bible or, or starting a daily devotion or praying, find one of us. Talk to us. We can help you, give you some tips. There's devotional books on the back table. If nothing else, pick up your Bible and start reading the Gospels so that you can learn about Jesus and who He is and what He's done. You can know more about what He wants for you. I promise if you look for time resting with Christ, you will find peace if you take time to seek it. And in a time where Jesus and his disciples were mourning and tired and worn out, he called them away to rest. Not to go off and hide from people, not to run away on their own, but to rest together, to refresh, and to find peace with Christ. It goes on in verse 32. So they went away, it says, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got, ahead, uh, got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And so they got away in the boat for a little bit. They got away from the chaos and, and, and the crowd for a little bit, but it didn't last long because by the time they crossed the Sea of Galilee, the crowd had already beat them there. And I'm sure that when the disciples saw the crowd on the land, some of them probably wanted to say, let's turn around and go back or let's keep floating in circles. We don't have to see these people right now. But it says that they landed and it says they saw the crowd and Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's been a while, but I know that I have mentioned to you that, or at least many of you have heard me mention that I had sheep when I was younger, growing up, and I blame my dad for that. Um, we raised sheep, and, and I know you don't want to hear about that again, if you already have, and you don't want to hear about it for the first time if you haven't, so. Uh, but the one thing that I can tell you for sure about sheep is that they are dumb. Dumb. 
They're the dumbest animal that I've ever seen on the face of the earth. And on their own, they're basically helpless. And some of us would say worthless, but um, they are helpless. And in that time, a sheep without a shepherd, um, a sheep without a shepherd had no protection. It could be stolen. Uh, it could be attacked by, uh, killed by a wild animal. It could get stuck in the brush. It could fall off a ledge. Uh, a sheep without a shepherd also had no guidance. It had no way to go find grass or water or shelter on its own. It wouldn't be able to find anything for itself. And I, I can tell you that I have seen quite a few sheep with their heads stuck in a fence with no way out. And I have never once felt compassion for them. <laughs> But Jesus looked at the crowd and he saw that they had nowhere to turn. They could do nothing for themselves. They had no guidance. They had no protection. They couldn't survive on their own. And he, instead of feeling sorry for himself for having to deal with helpless people, he felt compassion for them. This word compassion in the original language in the Greek means to be moved with pity from the inward parts. It means to be motivated to action from deep within the soul. And we again see the humanity of Jesus as he feels compassion for this crowd before him as he sees their spiritual condition. They are lost and he is moved to care for them, to do something about their condition. He looks upon these people who are searching for something that will give them meaning and purpose. And he is moved because they're lost. He's moved because he knows that they will die, perish without him. He sees their spiritual condition and he feels so sorry for them that he knows, even in his tired, mourning, worn out state, he knows that he has to do something about their condition. And so it says in the text, that he begins teaching them many things. He didn't turn them away. He doesn't run away. He, tells them, he, he doesn't tell them that he's, I'll be praying for you and move on. He begins to teach them. He tells them the truth about the kingdom of heaven. He addresses their condition. He meets their needs. And so I ask, when was the last time that we looked at a person who was drowning in their own sin and we felt compassion for them. I'm sure if you're like me, there's oftentimes you look at someone and you think to yourself, well, if he would just make better decisions in his life, then he wouldn't have it so bad. Or if she would just clean herself up, her family wouldn't be such a mess. But Jesus looked at those sheep who were dying without him. They were without a shepherd. And he says, if they just knew me, if they just knew me, they could find peace and rest. They would be safe and well-fed. He didn't beat them up for their sins. He didn't blame them for their condition or for being lost. He didn't tell them they should have this figured out by now. He had pity on them. He saw the crowd before him, and he had compassion on them, and his response was to meet their needs. And the more that you get to know Jesus, the more you will have compassion for his sheep too. Now, in our text, we see he must have gone on teaching them for quite a while because the disciples notice that it's getting late in the day and the disciples are tired and hungry too. And there's a big crowd and they're in a remote place and there's not a lot of options for food. 
Now, this is something that we have to think about. This doesn't even cross our mind uh, because no matter where we go in our culture, there's food close by. Even if it's the closest gas station, we can find something to eat if we're hungry. Um, but there was very little food preservation. They wouldn't have carried a lot of food with them. Most people had to worry about what they were going to eat today, today. Um, they had to find it that day. And this crowd was so busy running to beat Jesus to his landing spot to meet him there that it doesn't appear that anyone prepared to eat that day. Now, I heard one guy talking about this, and he says it's very obvious that everyone in the crowd was a man because nobody packed a lunch. <laughs> so it's late in the day, and no one has food, and the disciples tell Jesus that they need to send the people away, turn them away, so that they can find something to eat. And Jesus' answer is, you give them something to eat. Now, I always thought in the past, I always thought that Jesus was just being sarcastic with them, but I, I don't think that's right as I look at this. You know, I think Jesus, maybe here, maybe he's truly telling them, you find a way to meet their needs. These people are lost and they need your help. Maybe he wanted them to try. Maybe after sending them out with the power to teach, to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons, maybe he thought they should give it a shot. Maybe he knew they could and they didn't. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he just wanted them to say, we can't, but you can. Maybe that's what he wanted to hear. But he said, you meet their needs. You give them something to eat. I don't know what Jesus' point in saying that was, but I, I think you can tell by the disciples' wrong, uh, response that they were hangry too. They say... They would take eight months, that would take eight months of wages just to give these people bread to eat. And so Jesus says, just bring me what you have. And then you know the story. They come up with five loaves and, and two fish. And I know in our minds, when we hear this, when we hear loaves of bread, we think these big loaves right out of the bakery. But in John's account of the story, if you read that in John chapter 6, you, you see that it says the food came from a little boy who had brought five small loaves of bread and two small fish. Now this most likely was this boy's own lunch. It was most likely just enough food for him to pack that day. He wasn't hauling around five big loaves of bread in his backpack all day. He probably had these little small barley loaves as they're described in John that were more like dried flat bread or, or big crackers and a couple of little fish. So basically he brought crackers and tuna for lunch that day and he hadn't eaten it yet. Now this reminds me of how Jared occasionally comes to the office. Actually, that phrase stands alone. Jared occasionally comes to the office. Um, that's, not, that's not the point of what I was saying, but Jared does occasionally come to the office. But uh, occasionally Jared comes to the office um, and he will bring a sleeve of crackers and a little dish of tuna that he mixes He's not in here, is he? He went downstairs, I think. Okay, little sleeve uh, of crackers and, and a dish of, of tuna that he mixes with hot rotel and jalapenos. And uh, he and I both love hot tuna, and that's what he calls it, hot tuna. And so he is a kind man, and he will bring enough for me as well. And so we will sit down and devour a little dish of tuna and crackers for lunch on those days. Um, and basically, that's what this little boy brought, you know, a little package of crackers and some tuna. Okay? In our mind, we can make the, the bread and the fish as big as possible because it makes sense. There had to be a decent amount of food. We're talking a small amount that could fit in your hands. Five little crackers and two small fish. Um, 
It was enough for the little boy to have a meal. But no one in their right mind would think that this would feed a crowd of any size. And it says in our text the number of the men was 5,000. In Matthew's account of this story, it tells us the number was 5,000, not counting the women and the children. So this number could have been, if every man brought a wife, it's 10,000. If everyone brought their families, it could be twice that amount. We don't know, but at a minimum, there are 5,000 people. It could be 20,000 if everybody had families with them. We're not sure. But we're talking about a tiny amount of food and a huge crowd. This is not something where everyone gets a pinch and it goes around. This is a ridiculous disparity between the number of people and the amount of food that is there. And look at Look at verse 39, how Jesus handles it. He says, Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. There are a couple of interesting things in this verse, and they don't really have to do with where I'm going, but it, it's worth pointing out, I think. First, we again see that Mark is at it with some of his little sneaky details. Um, he says he had them sit down on the green grass. Now, he doesn't tell us when this takes place, but in John it tells us that this was shortly before the Passover, which would have been in the spring. Mark just says they sat on the green grass, so he's given us the hint of what time of year it is. They sat down on green grass. Just a little thing. Just a little thing. But it was springtime. The next thing that I find interesting here is that in, in both of these verses we just read, 39 and 40, it uses the word groups in, in mine, I assume in, in yours as well, in my NIV. And the first word for groups in verse 39, um, actually the word means guests at a party. Um, it says that Jesus called them guests at a party, have them sit in groups, but they're guests at a party. The second one in verse 40, when it says they were sitting in groups of hundreds and fifties, the word for groups here comes from the Greek word for a plot of land or a garden plot, how it's laid out in squares or rectangles. And so... I know this isn't a huge thing, but he's saying Jesus welcomed all of these people. All the people were welcome as guests at his feast. But it also says that he had them sit down in structured rows or plots. This is not chaos. This is not first come, first serve. It's not every man for himself. It's a simple demonstration that even as Jesus is supplying one of their most basic needs, our God is a God of order, not chaos. Our God is a God of precision, not random chance. And that same precision and order is also demonstrated at the end of the story when we see the 12 disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of food that were left over. But after he has them sitting in their groups, Jesus took the meager meal before him and he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks for what they had. It wasn't nearly enough for this huge crowd in front of them, but he simply said, thank you for what we've been given. He had the 12 start handing the food out to the groups, and it says that everyone ate and was satisfied. The word here for satisfied is actually fattened or gorged. This was a meal like they hadn't had in their lifetime. This wasn't just enough to get them by until they could get home. They'd never had a meal like this before. It wasn't a few bites. The massive crowd ate like they had never eaten before. Now, the convicting part of this story for me because I know my own heart towards, at times, towards helping people. The convicting part of this story is that Jesus didn't make sure that the crowd of all these people, 5, 10, 20,000, whatever it ended up being, he didn't make sure that their hearts were right before he met their needs. 
He didn't make them fill out an application or take a uh, copy of their driver's license. He didn't have them do community service. He didn't make them take a basic Christianity class. He knew that many of the people there had hard hearts. He knew that most were there just for the bread and the circus. He knew that others couldn't understand who he truly was. They just wanted a new leader, somebody different than what they were dealing with, with, with the Jewish religious leaders and, and with Rome. They wanted somebody new, a new king. Jesus knew all of this, and yet he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering, they were lost, with no guidance, no protection, and so he simply met their needs. Now, if you're like me, and you've heard this story before, you may have thought that the point of the story was that Jesus performed this great miracle. He took some tuna and crackers, just enough for a small boy's lunch, and he turned it into a feast for thousands upon thousands of people. And if you grew up hearing this story in Sunday school, you probably remember the story by its most important details that catch our ear. Five loaves, two fish, 5,000 men, and 12 basketfuls left over. Those details are important to the story. They matter. The demonstration of Jesus' power was a huge, huge part of the story. And in John's gospel, the connection that Jesus taught after this, that he was the bread of life, was also at the heart of this story. But to the author Mark, as we're studying right now, the main point of this story is that Jesus had compassion on these people and took pity on these lost sheep. And he cared enough to meet their needs. He didn't tell them to go on your way, be warm and well-fed. He didn't tell them to meet him at the synagogue on Saturday to learn more. He didn't tell them, wait for the weekend to lighten your load and rest. He gave them bread to provide for their physical needs. He offered them rest to provide for their emotional needs. And he taught them the truth about the kingdom of heaven to provide for their spiritual needs. He saw them and he loved them as they were. He met their needs without conditions because he cared for them. He had compassion on them. It's in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that we read that it's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. God's kindness brings us to repentance. And we see that demonstrated in the life of Christ in this story by his compassion, his kindness. In the Hawaiian Islands, there is an island that, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but Molokai. Um, years ago in the 1800s, this island was used as a leper colony. Now, leprosy is not something we worry about today. You know, it was mentioned in the Bible. And for centuries, it was a disease that was considered highly contagious and deadly um, for years and years and years. And, and again, you know it was mentioned in the Bible often. It caused nasty sores on the extremities of the body. Uh, often led to losing body parts and eventually death. Anyway, this island in Hawaii, Molokai, uh, was used as a leper colony in the 1800s, and, and people who had leprosy were sent there to be quarantined, to be isolated, to keep the disease from sweat, uh, spreading to others who were healthy. And in 1873, there was a young priest named Father Damien who volunteered to spend his life serving the people of that island. 
And when he arrived, he found that the people there were suffering terribly in their physical state from the disease, but they were also suffering socially, emotionally, and spiritually. There was extreme drug and alcohol abuse on the island, and there were all kinds of immorality uh, and abuse in relationships as well. There was an overall sense of just hopelessness among the lepers. And, and one of the most common things he heard when he moved there was, where is God? In all of this suffering, where is God? And Father Damien lived among the 700 lepers on that island, and he knew very well the dangers of the disease around him, and he knew that having so much contact with these people would lead to, inevitable, to an inevitable end for him. But he stayed. He built hospitals, he built clinics, he built churches, and he even built coffins for all of these people who were alone to die with no friends, no family to help them live or die with dignity. And Father Damien stayed there and he cared so much for the suffering people of that island that, that he never left. And every time he stood up at a church service, he stood in front of the lepers and warmly and lovingly he started to address them as my dear brethren. But after he had been there about 12 years, one morning in 1885, after living with them for that long, he got up to address his congregation and he began, instead of saying, my dear brethren, he began with my fellow lepers. I am now one of you. Out of love and care for those people, Father Damien became one of them. The only way that he could truly show them God's presence was by becoming one of them. That's the story of Jesus. He became one of us to show us God's presence. He came to earth as a demonstration of God's kindness and compassion. And Mark, Mark 6 shows us that even in, in the middle of, of one of the darkest periods of his life, Jesus had been rejected by his own town. He had been alone without his closest friends. His cousin and friend John had been murdered. He still, in the middle of the darkest period, one of the darkest periods of his life, he still looked at the people in front of them who were helpless, and he had compassion. And he treated them with kindness. He met their needs. And he sees you. Our God sees you right where you are. Are. He sees your pain this morning. He knows that you're tired. He sees you are mourning. And He wants to meet your needs. He wants to heal your heart. He wants to forgive your sin. He looks at us with compassion. And He just wants to offer help. Most of you know what John 3.16 says. John 3.16, you see it on the posters at ball games, and it's printed at many different places. But John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But a lot of times we leave out the very next verse, which is John 3.17. Naturally, 17 follows 16. Um, the next verse says... For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. 
He sees your pain. He sees your sin. And he offers himself to meet your needs. 